Hello, welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Olomi. Glad you could join me. Um, I wanted to start this episode off with a shout out to John for his feedback on our Christmas special episode. Um, thanks for listening, John, and thanks for sharing your thoughts. It was uh, great hearing from you, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'd like to start off podcast giving some shout outs to people, people who communicate with me. It makes me feel like I'm not speaking to myself in a dark room somewhere in SoCal. <laughs> Um, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do so by uh, hitting me up on Instagram or Twitter at a a o l o m i, and using the or using the hashtag Head on History. I'm, I'm joking. I'm actually in my well lit apartment recording this with my sound editor. So today I wanted to talk about um, the theology that develops within early Islam. And I want to get back to our regular discussion before the kind of special episodes and pick up where we left off with the early formations of Sunnism and Shiism. So we've established kind of proto-Sunnism and proto-Shiism, the kind of early debates that form the very foundations of what later becomes Sunnism and Shiism. Today I'm going to talk more about the theology, the kind of intellectual developments that eventually become absorbed into um, the, the various denominations. Um, early in the development of Islam, Muslims had to contend with two kind of controversies. The first was predestination, and the second was the nature of the Quran itself. That is, did humans have free will, or did they not? Was it all determined by God? This came about um, from the idea that God is all-powerful. Um, and if so, then he had already determined everything. Uh, and similarly, the nature of the Quran, is the Quran eternal or not? Both of these kind of controversies are central to the early developments or theological developments within Islam. So let's first take up a predestination. What is kind of predestination? Let's break that down before we talk about Islam in particular. So predestination is the idea that your destiny is predetermined, that God determines, or the creator or the supreme being determines what your path will be, when you will be born, when you will have children, when you will get when you will die, etc. That everything in your life has been plotted out for you. There are proponents of predestination and there are opponents of it. The proponents of predestination, specifically within Islam, come to this uh, conclusion because they believe that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. The argument therefore follows that if God is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful, if he knows everything, then he must already know what is going to happen to you. If he knows what's going to happen to you, then it's already happened. It's already been planned out. It's already been plotted out. There is no free will. There is no choice that you have. There's nothing you can do about it. You're just living out the kind of expectations of God or the thoughts of God. In that way, humans become more like a... a puppets or, or, or really kind of living out the will of God. And that's really all that they are. And in such a case, the mankind is not, is not responsible for his or her salvation, that God determines who goes to heaven and God determines who goes to hell. It comes from the idea that God is all-knowing. Now, opponents of predestination go, well, then what's the 
purpose of religion? What is the purpose of faith? What is the purpose of trying to be righteous? If God already knows what you're going to do, and God has already determined what you're going to do, then there is no purpose in, in doing any of it. That, the, that, that predestination takes away the redemptive quality of faith and the salvation quality of religion. So therefore, they argue that things are not determined by God, that things are not predetermined in any way, shape, or form, but that you have the free will to choose your own path, to do right or to do wrong, and therefore you're responsible for your uh, own salvation, whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. It all comes down to your actions. You are accountable for, for what it is you do. Now, then this debate goes further and it asks the question about the Quran itself. What is the nature of the Quran? The Quran is believed from very early on to be the speech of God. But if it is the speech of God, is it eternal like God? In such a case, it would have to be co-eternal with God, that it is equally eternal. If it is co-eternal with God, does that take away from the unique quality of God? Particularly in Islam, where God is treated as fundamentally and essentially unique, uh, more so than probably any other monotheistic religion, whereas in Christianity, there is a imminent quality to God vis-a-vis -vis the nature of the Logos, or that is Christ. That is, God can become knowable through his incarnation as Christ. Whereas in, in Islam, God is only knowable through his revelation, that is the Quran. So the question then becomes, is the Qur'an co-eternal? Now, the same debate uh, Christians dealt with in the 4th century. By 325 in the Council of Nicaea, there were a variety of debates asking, is Jesus co-eternal with God? Is the Trinity co-eternal with God? Is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all co-eternal and co-equal? And some Christians said that, yes, they're all co-equal and co-eternal. And there are some that said, no, they're not. That God the Father is, is eternal, but God the Son is, is mortal and so on and so forth. And there's a variety of different uh, perspectives from the Arian perspective to the perspective of Athanasius to the perspective of, of, the, of the Monophytes and a variety of different uh, positions. Um, but eventually an orthodoxy developed about it, around it. And the same thing is happening within Islam from about the 7th century to about the 9th and 10th century. But it's not about Christ or the nature of Muhammad, because Muhammad was just a man, but the nature of the Quran. Those that argued that the, the Quran was co-eternal saw it as everlasting and therefore unchanging and existed at the beginning of time and would exist at the end of time. But there are those that argue that it could not be co-eternal, that, that the Quran was a written text, that it was written in ink and in paper, and that while certainly it may be composed of God's speech, that it is not co-eternal with God himself, that God was unique above it all. Now, this is the major kind of debates that Islam are dealing with, and there's a variety of different positions that are being taken. And those positions eventually coalesce into an orthodoxy that informs both Sunnism and Shiism. By the 7th and 8th century, there was a group that emerged known as the Qadarites or the Qadariya. These groups or these people postulated that mankind had free 
free will over their salvation. They were a minority sect within a broader kind of movement in the Umayyad dynasty. The earliest writings of the Qadarites uh, come to us in fragments from this really fascinating figure known as Hassan al-Basri. Hassan al-Basri is held in high regard by Sufis who think of him as as this kind of their progenitor. Um, and we'll talk about Sufism next week, so don't worry, we haven't forgotten about Sufism. We'll talk about what it is and how it developed. Um, but also he's, he's held in high regard by Sunnis as well. Yet theologians argue that he was probably a Qadarite, and his, his um, Rasal, the text that he writes, is a Qadari text. Um, he was a really fascinating guy. He was a really passionate teacher. He gave really stirring sermons from what we hear. He was reputed to always wear black, and he was deeply pious. And now famously, he was so pious, and this is why he inspired the Sufis, he would weep while praying, and he would often pray on his rooftop, and he would weep so heavily for love of God and, and reverence of God that his tears would run off the roof into pools, into the ground, into rivulets. Obviously, this is probably some type of a cop apocryphal story, but I think it really tells us and, and helps us as, as historians to understand how later people held him in such high regard. So it's not that whether that story is true or not, most historians don't believe it's true, but what it means and it means that the, it really shows the kind of value that they put in Hassan al-Basri. Now, the Qadarites, the group that he was a part of, formed during the height of the Umayyad Caliphate. And they were part of the movement of people that turned away from the excesses of the Khalif. Now, we talked about this in our regular episodes on Sunnism and Shiism as how the people turned away from the Caliphate. The Battle of Karbala for the Shias in particular was such a horrific moment, a moment in which they completely uh, felt a schism from the Caliphate, said that the Caliphate was lost and had been corrupted fully and they turned towards a communal imams, while the Sunnis were so um, appalled by the kind of excesses of the, um, or the proto-Sunnis, we should say. The proto-Sunnis were so appalled by the excesses of the caliphates who lived as aristocrats and really violated the tradition of egalitarianism that is within the heart of Islam, that they turned towards living uh, a life that emulated Muhammad at the local level. Both of these groups kind of turned away. Well, the Qadarites were part of that movement, part of the people that turned away. And for them, the idea that you had free will over your salvation, the free will over your destiny, also meant that you had an obligation to uphold righteousness and to correct error. The Qadrites were therefore some of the fiercest critics of the Khalifs. We saw this particularly with Omar II. Now, Omar II ruled from 682 CE to 720 CE. And this is where there was a major debate between Umar and Hassan al-Basri. Hassan al-Basri would argue for predestination. Now, this was also coded language, right? Or argue against predestination, I should say. He would argue for free will. Hassan al-Basri and the Qadrites would say that free will uh, was a reality and was important and that man was accountable for his actions. Now, this was coded language that would critique the Khalifs because the idea was that if all men are accountable for actions, that, that it's not just predetermined or predestined by God, then therefore um, the Khalifs can be held accountable for their actions. That Khalifs aren't just ordained by God to rule, that they have to earn the right to rule, that they have to be upright and just, and just, and not all things that they do are supported by God's will. So the Qadri uh, kind of critique of the, of the Khalifs comes in that form 
form. And Hassan al-Basri has a series of kind of sermons and even letters that he writes. Now, his letters are very careful. When you look at the Rasalat and and his, his uh, kind of the language he uses, it's very cautious. Because he knows that the Khalif has power over his life, that the Khalif can have him imprisoned or killed. But he is also quite fearless in his critique. And what he does is he recites verses of the Quran in particular to justify his argument. He uses the, uh, a sort of rationalism. He uses a rational argument that says, well, look, if God is saying that you need to pray and you need to do this and you need to fast and look at this verse, well, that means, therefore, it follows that we have uh, accountability to God. God, that we must be accountable for his actions. And those are very clever uses of it. Now, Umar II responds. He writes his own series of letters. Now, likely he had his, his kind of scholars that he had around him, his court scholars do it on his behalf. But he was involved in this debate. And he, in turn, cites uh, what he calls the Akhbar. The Akhbar are news of Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad particularly. The news of Muhammad, this, this, this kind of stories about him, the Akhbar, right? And what he argues is he goes, look, there is this famous saying that Umar ibn uh, al-Khattab talks about where God, uh, the Prophet Muhammad says that he heard the Prophet Muhammad say that God passed his hands over the groin of Adam and Adam asked, what, O oh God, were you doing? And he said, I have selected which of your children and your descendants will go into heaven and which of your descendants will go into hell. Now, there's some interesting things that come out of this story. First, the Akbar become the kind of proto or the kind of format and style by which the Sunnah and the Hadiths develop. So remember, we talked about the Sunnah and the Hadiths when we were talking about Sunniism, and we talked about Abu Hanifa, how he started to write down the sayings of Muhammad. The Akbar becomes the format, the Akbar that Umar uses, which is that so-and-so heard Muhammad say blank. And that is an, an important detail because that becomes what's known as as isnad, the trans, the witnessing or the transmission of the story or the news or the message from Muhammad. It's a tactic that's used to link up the saying to something Muhammad may have said. Now, there are interesting things to this. On one hand, it is clearly an attempt to coalesce, consolidate, and 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 combine and compile a the kind of body of works with Muhammad. If he had a oral tradition of the teaching, an oral tradition of instruction, then it needed to be written down and compiled. And so the Akhbar and the Hadiths are that attempt. That is one point. The other point is that because they are written down after and at particular moments in history, they are also very conveniently used to support a particular position. So it is convenient that Umar II finds this, this hadith or this akhbar, this news, which he can then use to justify his position, arguing, well, look, Prophet Muhammad very clearly told Umar ibn al-Khattab. He told old Umar, which is the son of, of uh, Umar al-Khattab, right? He told Umar ibn al-Khattab uh, that all you had to do was, all you had to do was be born, that God had already determined from the time of Adam on who, whose lot was going to be heaven and whose lot 
was going to be the hellfire. This argument was convenient for Umar II. Here it was, Umar ibn al-Khattab, the second caliph, uh, a man of upright standing, a man whom all most Muslims uh, honored and respected and revered, had heard Muhammad, who was the prophet of Islam, say this thing that supported the position of the caliph. Now, why would the caliph want to, to uh, you know, you know, put forth the argument for predestination? Why was he so adamant of fighting the Qadriyas? Because if predestination existed, if God ordained all things, if God determined who was going to heaven and hell and there was nothing you could do about it, there was no free will involved, then at that point, then the Khalif would be divinely ordained as well. That it was the Khalif's lot in life to rule. That he, there was no accountability, that he had supreme authority because he was simply a manifestation of Allah's will. It was a very convenient argument, and it was no one that was solved within their lifetime. But the two positions starts to develop. In 750 CE, the Umayyads are finally overthrown. And all these different kind of disgruntled groups are brought together into a coalition by Asafin, the first of the uh, Umay the Abbasids. And the Abbasids overthrow the Umayyads with the promise of a new caliphate, a caliphate that would bring all of these coalitions together. They would uh, bring in the kind of disgruntled proto-Sunnis who started to develop a tradition known as the Ahli, became known as the Ahli al-Hadith, the people of Hadith. These were people who would who who adopted the style of Umar II, the Akhbar, the Hadiths written as so and so heard so and so heard the Prophet say blank, and would use that to create a systematized, uh, um, pro, a systematized body of literature by which to guide the various acts of worship and life for the Muslims. This became the Ahli al hadith the proto sunni then they had the aliyids the aliyids who were uh, the proto shia they had turned away from the caliphate they saw that the caliphate had collapsed into corruption and they were hoping for a return to the prophet's family while well, the abbasids promised them hey look we are descended from abbas the uncle of muhammad we're of the bloodline of muhammad we'll be restoring the shia uh, uh, authority and so the, they were brought the shias in but they also brought in the qadarites the, the people who believed in free will and justice and accountability and said yes look at those uh, umayyads they lived like kings and they were unjust we will have a new caliphate well of course it didn't work out but this is these new coalitions all came to a head under this new caliphate from 750 on under the abbas the abbasids now the abbasids had a period of massive cultural flourishing carried out or started at the very least by Harun al-Rashid. Harun al-Rashid builds what's known as the Bayt al-Hikmah. Now you can go and listen to last season's episode to hear more details about the Abbasids. I'm not going to be doing a history of the Abbasids in this episode. I'm just giving you some details so you can understand the contextual background for why the, the, the certain theological positions develop. So we see very clearly this cultural flourishing under the reign of Harun al-Rashid, this massive library called Bayt al-Hikmah. And the Bayt al-Hikmah is a translation. It, it houses a translation project in which the books of Gundu Shapir, which is a library in uh, the ancient Persian world, and the works of the Greco world and the, and the Indian world or the Hindu world are brought into Baghdad and they are translated into Arabic. So you have Aristotle and Plato. You have the works of, the, of Mani the prophet. You have the works, uh, the, the 
works of science and alchemy from South Asia, all of it being translated in Baghdad. And those translations have an impact on the descendants, the intellectual descendants of the Qadarites. They start to absorb certain elements of Greek philosophy, particularly the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. And they start to theorize, try to mesh Greek philosophy with Islam. And this group, the descendants of the Qadrites, develop what is known as Qalam. Qalam means the pen. And this is the Arabic word for theology. For theology. And they develop a subcategory or, a, or an auxiliary or a side group of this known as philosoph or philosophy. And these groups, most famously of them, was the Mutazili. The Mutazili were a particular theological branch that had absorbed the Qadri's uh, commitment to free will, accountability, and justice. And they had argued that, like the Qadris, that the Quran was not co-eternal with God, that the Quran was a written document. It was a created, it was a created book. It was created after God, that it was not timeless, that it was not eternal with God, but that instead God was unique. And of God's qualities, what was most unique was justice, what's called al-adl justice and so you have this this idea this kind of this philosophy this theology that was being developed by the mutazilis and it drew very heavily upon a, the greco world the hellenic world the idea of a of a unique quality of god that exists in its ideal form is plato it's the Platonic ideas of the idioms, the idea of, you know, the, that there are certain Platonic forms that exist on a rational plane and that they exist eternal and that those are ideals. Those Platonic ideals for the Mutazili, that Platonic ideal was justice, al-adil, the justice of God. And so they brought in a great deal of Platonic rationalism. Other philosophers developed at this time as well, people like Al-Qindi. Al-Qindi was an interesting guy, absolutely fascinating. He's kind of considered to be the preeminent a Muslim philosopher. So he developed what's really kind of developed philosoph, that branch of philosophy. Um, and later kind of theologians, Al-Farabi, etc., even Ibn Sina would kind of disagree with some of Al-Qindi's thought. But Al-Qindi makes, uh, really kind of develops the, the Platonic and Aristotelian components of Islamic thought during the Abbasid Caliphate. And he was patronized by Al-Ma'mun from 813 to 833. And we're going to talk about Al-Ma'mun in just a little bit. But I wanted to talk about Al-Kindi because he has some fascinating ideas just to give you an idea of the debates that were going on during this time. So Al-Kindi, you know, he's born in Kufa, he ends up in Basra, eventually teaches in uh in uh, Baghdad so he's you know kind of all over the place at the heartland of the Islamic world his influences come from neoplatonic philosophy in a in a great deal specifically plotinius um and he argues what al-kindi argues is that god is unity so he takes the islamic concept of tawhid right remember in islam there's a very strict monotheism and it's called Tawheed, the unity of God. And this unity, the Tawheed component, becomes a very important part of Sunnism in particular. We've talked about how the unity of God is reflected in the unity of a community, right? So the oneness of God, Tawheed, he takes that component and fuses it with the notion of a kind of 
prime mover. He sees God as the prime agent of creation. In other words, what he sees is God within a chain of cause and effects cause and effect with God as the primary agent that uh, invigorates and mobilizes those causes and effects. In other words, God creates, he creates an agent upon which he acts upon that agent, that agent creates an effect. That is Al-Kindi's thought. That is Aristotelian, that is Greek ideas. But he fuses that with the Tawheed notion within Islam. Now later, kind of Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina or, or Ibn Sina kind of push back a little bit on this. But this is a really important part of Al-Kindi. And Al-Kindi's thinking is also becomes influential for the Mutazili. There's another group uh, that's developed, uh, the Ikhwan Asaf. We'll talk about the Ikhwan at a different time, I think. Um, there's a whole kind of episode we can do about what the Ikhwan were thinking because we're they're really fascinating fascinating and mysterious group and we're not sure a lot about their details but al-kindi has a lot of connections there and so we're going to think of so i want you to sit with that and we'll come back in season three when we do more regional histories of the middle east and talk about kind of what what's going on there but al-kindi is one of those main thinkers and he epitomizes the kind of logical rational uh, brand of philosoph and theology that emerges. That is epitomized with the Mutazali, as we mentioned. And the other group that really dominated uh, were the Ahli al-Hadith. The Ahli al-Hadith were the inheritors of the kind of proto-Sunni position, developed the, the language of the Akhbar in the Hadiths, um, um, particularly um, focusing on emulating Muhammad and living uh, a life that it was quietest. They had some uh, beliefs on predestination, that man was predestined to heaven or hell, but that the, you should emulate Muhammad to the best of your abilities. And so there was this kind of fascinating tension between trying to live uh, a Quranic lifestyle while also believing in predestination. But their quietest approach made them uh, quite favorable to the Khalifs at first. The Khalifs uh, really enjoyed and, and granted favors to the Ahl al-Hadith because they were quietest. These were people that because they believed in predestination and on emulating Muhammad at the kind of granular individual level, that they were never going to start revolutions and they were not going to oppose the Khalif and they were ever going to demand justice in the same way that Mutazilis will. But there's something interesting happens. Now, Harun al-Rashid died and when he died, he appointed his sons. He had two sons who were going to um, rule after him. And these sons were, were going to take over. And this is a very common aspect in uh, Islam is that it's not always the eldest son that inherits. It's not always the son that inherits. It can be the nephew or the cousin or the brother. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in particular is an example of this. For many years, it was brother inheriting after brother rather than son. And uh, it's really just quite, quite recently with MBS Mohammed bin Salman that we see that the crown prince, the son, is going to be taking over. So anyways, Harun al-Rashid uh, died um, and he appointed his, uh, he appointed his son al-Amin to be Khalif with the explicit idea that Al-Amin would hand over um, the reins to his brother. So in 809, um, Al-Amin takes over from Harun al-Rashid. In 809, he rules, he's favored towards the Ahli al-Hadith, these people who are quietest, and he garners support with them. 
But what he does is at one point he decides that he's going to break his contract with his dad and uh, appoint his own son to be the ruler. His son would now be Khalif. Now this became an issue, right? Harun al-Rashid had created this plan. He wanted his his sons to get along. He said, look, um, you can rule uh, as Khalif, and then when you die, you will let al-Ma'mun become ruler. Al-Amin, by breaking that, opened the floodgates, and civil war captured the uh, Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, he was deposed and killed in 813 CE. Al-Mu'mun had a very powerful governor, Al-Tahir, who led uh, this battle from Khorasan because uh, Al-Mu'mun was a governor in Khorasan. He led the battle, defeated Al-Amin, killed Al-Amin, and took control. That left Al-Mu'mun in charge. Now remember, Al-Amin was favorable to the Ahli al-Hadith. He was interested in uh, the groups of people who were quietists, right? The proto-Sunnis, if you will. Al-Ma'mun found support in a different group known as the Mu'tazali. So remember, those are the kind of different groups. And both of them, in many ways, were descendants of that original debate between the Qadrites and Omar II. That debate comes to a head under Al-Ma'mun in 833, right, but kind of a few months before he dies. Al-Ma'mun, not only does he adopt the Mu'taz'ali position and starts to kind of favor the proto, the Aliyids who are starting to develop into Shi'ism, but he, he institutes what's known as the Minya. The Minya is a series of religious persecutions in which he basically brings forth all the Ahli al-Hadith and forces them to accept the Mu'tazali doctrine. Remember, the Mu'tazali doctrine is all about radical free will, accountability, the createdness of the Qur'an, that the Qur'an is not an uncreated, co-eternal speech of God, but that it is it is created, and that al-adil, justice of God, is this kind of ideal form that exists and that must be obtained, that God himself is even bound by justice, that he can only act in just ways. Um, this was all part of the kind of Mu'tazali doctrine and part of this kind of uh, developing a system known as Qalam. The Minya then was an attempt to force everyone to deal with this. It was an attempt to resolve the kind of theological, quote-unquote, problem of evil, of how this just and all-powerful God would allow evil to exist in the world. By so he adopts Mutazaliism, both because he was likely pious. I don't want to dismiss his personal beliefs. He thought himself as a bit of a philosopher. He grew up in the reign of Harun al-Rashid, where there was all these translations going on. So he was versed in kind of the Greek scholarship. Um, so he was very much inclined towards the Mutazali school of Qalam, but also because there was a political expediency. The Mutazali favored him. He was able to consolidate his power with the Mutazili in opposition to the Ahli al-Hadith who had earlier been uh, with his brother al-Amin. Now, during this time, we start to see that the Ahli al-Hadith coalesce into the ulama. Now, the ulama had already existed. The ulama just means scholars. These were people who had who were writing down the Hadiths, who were memorizing the Hadiths, who were uh, teaching people Sharia, which we discussed in our Sunni um, uh, episode. These were people who were experts in law, but they hadn't really emerged as a real political force, but they did under the Minya because they opposed the religious persecution that the Khalif 
was instituting. And they fundamentally argued that the religious, the that theology and religion and faith was not the responsibility of the Khalif. That the Khalif was a caretaker, a guardian, but he was not himself a pope or a religious figure. And they pushed back against him, really developing their own political power. There's a very famous story of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who becomes the fo the father of Hanbalism, of the Hanbali school of thought. This was one of the main madhabs that developed under the kind of early movements of Sunnism. So Abu Hanifa, who had, was the first to really write down his uh, the hadith of, of Muhammad, that develops into uh, the Hanafi school of thought, then comes the Shafi and Maliki school of thought, uh, and then comes uh, finally the Hanbali school of thought. And that's within Sunni Islam. The Shia have their own schools of thought. But Hanbal quite famously was an old skinny man, and what he was, he was imprisoned by Al Ma'mun. Ma'mun was trying to force this guy to convert or accept the Mu'ta'azali doctrine, and he would not. He said, I refuse. And so he was put in prison. And there's a very famous story uh, that we, we read about how he was dragged out of prison. This old, bedraggled man, skinny from, from malnutrition, henna-dyed beer. And he was standing before Al-Ma'mun. And Al-Ma'mun, like all the Abbasid Khalifis, caliphates and caliphs, uh, ruled as a kind of absolute monarch. He believed himself to be God's sword on earth. He stood on his throne surrounded by big beautiful cushions, a massive court filled with theologians and philosophers from Christians and Jews and Muslims all there to demonstrate the resplendent nature of the of the court. And behind him stood the executioner. He was the literal threat of the Khalif. The Khalif had the power over life and death. And before this kind of great majesty of the court stood this beggar, this man in rags with his henna-dyed beard, skinny from malnutrition, barely squinting because he had been in the dark of the prison for years. And Mal Ma'mun addresses this man with the full power of his court, demanding that he accepts the Mutazili doctrine. And Ahmad ibn Al-Halban rejects it, simply reciting, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the Prophet of God. In other words, arguing for kind of return to a pure, simple Islam. And the Hanbali school, which develops out of Al-Ma'mun, I mean, out of uh, Ibn al-Hanbal, Hanbal becomes a conservative school of, of thought, of religious thinking, of jurisprudence. It is the most conservative of the, of the madhabs, and it is about returning to a sort of simplistic, pure interpretation of the Qur'an. And it really, you can see this kind of Puritan uh, inclination in his rejection of al-Ma'mun. Al-Ma'mun eventually dies. The Mina is carried on by, by the Khalifs after him. But the, there is a resolution to the conflict the Sunni, the emerging kind of scholarly elite within the Ahli al-Hadith, the ulama, challenge the Khalif successfully and they gather the people around them. They become very popular because they are expressing 
uh, religion at the local level. So they're the people that are in the mosque. They're the people that are, are teaching. They're the people who are guiding people through Sharia. And so they exert a great deal of power and they begin to become the moral and kind of ethical check against the Khalif. And they withdraw from the Khalif any sort of attempt to wrest religious authority. The Khalif is merely the political leader. He has no right to interfere in this way. And as a result, there comes to be a sort of resolution between the Mu'tazili position and the Ahli al-Hadith position. The Mu'tazili position of the uncreated uh, of the created Quran that is not co-eternal with God, of justice being this uh, this ideal and of free will, with the Ahli al-Hadith position that developed under uh, Umar II, this kind of idea that you follow the Hadith, all of life is predestined, that you are destined to heaven or hell according to God, um, and that's it. And that the Quran was uh, co-eternal and uncreated. This third position that kind of develops is known as the Ashari position. And the Ashari position is best epitomized by Muhammad al-Ghazali. He becomes the main defender of the Ashari position and reconciles the kind of differences between the rationalist schools and, and, and the Ahl al-Hadith schools and really kind of brings together all of this in, in a really fascinating way with Sufism. So we're going to talk about Muhammad al-Ghazali actually in the next uh, episode with when we talk about Sufism. Now, but we're going to note that he becomes the main defender and the kind of epitome of the Ashari school. Now, the Ashari school is actually founded by Abu al-Hasan al-Ashari and it again, it's mostly in the 10th century and it again deals with this kind of tension between these two kind of groups um, arguing uh, against the kind of Mutazili's over-dependence on rationalism and reason. Remember, the Mutazili's drew in Greek rationality, and it became a core principle of the Mutazili ideas. What the Ashari argue, therefore, is that, yeah, uh, humans have free will. They say, yeah, humans have free will, but they don't have the power to create anything in the material world. Only God can do that. Fundamentally, what they argue, or in essence, if you will, is that humans have the freedom of intention, that humans intend to do an act, and when they intend to do the act, that is the free will. But that all action is still created by God. God is this kind of never-ending principle, this agent that starts with the smallest of atoms into the biggest of things. So God is in everything, but so God acts through it all. That is God's omnipotence and omniscience, but that human free will is found in the intention. Right. And intentionality and intention becomes a very, very important part of of Islam. It becomes a, a major component of of prayers. Like I intend to do uh, these many amounts of prayers, five rakah. Um, I intend to do, uh, uh, you know, uh, this sort of fasting. And it's called niyat or niyat. I, your niyat or intention is an important part of it. And it really develops out of, of this Ashari belief that it tries to reconcile those two debates between, that tries to resolve the debates of the minya of, between the Ahli al-Hadith and the emerging kind of uh, ulema with the Mutazili. They also argue that the interpretation of the Quran and the Hadiths should be done with the aid of old interpretation, that there is a sort of uh, hierarchy of interpretation, that the closer you are to the original interpretation, 
interpretations, the older interpretations, the better. This idea of interpreting the Quran or the tafsir and the use of the hadith very clearly comes out of the early Ahli al-Hadith movement, the people who are writing it down. They also argue that the knowledge of God comes not from rationalism and reason um, and, and kind of intellectual pursuits, but it comes from studying the Quran and the hadiths of Muhammad. So again, you could see them leaning towards the Ahli al-Hadith. They argue that God is unique and his attributes cannot fully be understood, that he's kind of beyond, he's fully and totally transcendent. In this way, they blend both the Ahli al-Hadith position and the Mu'tazili position. On one hand, they continue to see the uh, God as a sort of prime mover, that is a very Mu'tazili philosophical position. But on the other hand, they see them as so transcendent that he's not bound by any sort of ideal. Whereas in the Mu'tazili, even God is bound by justice. And it is really in that the kind of compromise of the Ashari that Sunnism develops. Sunni Islam takes from the Mutazili branch and the Ahli al-Hadith. It comes together in the Ashari tradition, developed and then really defended by Al-Ghazali. We're going to talk about this next week when we talk about Sufism, and we're going to talk further about how both Sufism developed, how uh, the Ashari tradition becomes more orthodox, the final bits of Islamic theology, and that will be the end of this kind of intellectual uh, history of Islam and kind of season two, um, looking at the kind of trajectory of how Islam intellectually develops over a series of years. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, next week. We'll talk about Sunnism, the final bits of Sunnism and Shiism, but mostly talk about Sufism and Al-Ghazali and how that really kind of develops over a period of time. What I want to leave you with, though, is to really think about this moment as not necessarily the golden age of Islam, but the heart of a series of debates. Some argue that those debates kind of ended, that they, oh, the, the minyas were over and then every Sunni became an Ashari, and that's just not true. The debates continued on, but what did happen is that Qalam, or theology, started to fall out of favor, and instead of having the sort of uh, uh, theological debates about belief and, and practice, instead you had a much more nuanced debate about ritual uh, and how things uh, were meant to be, you know, how things could be followed in Islamic principles. But you'll also see that there are later theological developments. We're going to talk about, for example, Zuhahadi, who with his uh, illumination theology, there are some ideas that come out there, developments in Sufism, and even in Sunnism and Shiism, things that, that, that kind of manifest much later. But it is in the moment of the post minya that Sunnism fully develops. By absorbing the Ashari tradition, by absorbing the Ashari theology and accepting the kind of practical premise of the Ahli al-Hadith, the compromise of the Ashari, but the practices of the Ahli al-Hadith, that was the development of a system of, of guidance vis-a-vis -vis the Hadiths, the series of schools of thought known as the Madhabs, and then the practice of keeping the community unified and led by the ulama, the scholars who came as a check against the caliphate, right? 
This has developed from the Umayyads, where there is a dissatisfaction with the Umayyads, all the way reaching a crescendo with the Abbasids. With the Minya, there was that rejection of the religious persecution and the full formation of an, of an entire community, that is Sunnism, that would both accept the Caliphate as the political formation of Islam, but also be a check against its excesses. I'm going to leave you there uh, to, tonight, and we're going to continue on with our next episode, and we'll finalize the uh, ep- the next episode with all the books on theology and Islam that you'd need to know. Let me know what your thoughts are. Hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast and it was useful to you, S- some good takeaways. Let me know if there's anything else that you'd like to hear, and hopefully you'll tune in next week. Thank you for tuning in, my wonderful, wonderful friends, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Thank you.